0: Good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio Supplementary Show, 27th. Uh, sorry to the people we didn't get to last night. Had a few technical problems. Uh, had to uh, upgrade. Mike uh, found out that he uh, was picked up by a virus scanner as a status slash zeitgeister. Uh So clearly had to reformat him, uh, and then he lost uh, all of his memory. Which um, has actually proved to be a significant upgrade due to all of the past instances of sexual harassment <laughs> he's been subjected to. What Mike, is to there the anything like that to my little assessment of yesterday? Is that a fair enough assessment?
1: Adding that to the file.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I was referencing sexual harassment <laughs> oh, okay. Not directly se- anyway, Suppression. I mean, Suppression Does it Like it matters at this point <laughs>
1: <maybe>? <laughs> I have
0: photos what, it, what difference could it possibly make now um, Alright, so who, who do we have up first?
1: Alright, up first is James uh, His question is My wife's parents have grown to dislike me Yet she remains very loyal to them And it's driving a wedge in our relationship I tried to talk to her about it But she is very resistant to the subject What can I do?
0: Ah, all right. From the law of morality to in law. We are keeping the theme going. Uh, James, sir, uh, what have you done to annoy these fine, nice, lovely people? <laughs> what?
2: What have you done? Well, the, uh, the first instance of annoyance would be I, was, uh, I had met them several times previous, and their English by the way. So they're very proper and um, and very formal. So I, I kind of meshed with them and was polite and the whole thing. And then uh, we had our wedding at our house here and their entire family came and we ran out of room to put everyone. So I was cleaning out the sunroom to put a bed in there and there's boxes and boxes of books. And I opened one and they were full of like coloring books and pamphlets from auctions in 1972 in Belgium and stuff like that. And I casually said, have you looked in these boxes of books? I'm not sure that they're all worth keeping because they, you know, there's like 25 boxes of books. And that was apparently a very horrible thing to insult her books and um i guess the pressure of the wedding and a house full of nieces and nephews and and they're a fairly hysterical family lots of loudness and telling each other to shut up and stuff like that whereas my family's always been very calm and quiet you know like my my family you walk in the door and you wouldn't know anyone was home half the time which uh, is not necessarily a good thing either but anyhow um That, insulting her books, turned out to be a major faux pas, and I proceeded to stick my foot in my mouth repeatedly for the rest of the week. And we went on our honeymoon, and she's been very cold and distant um, to me ever since.
0: Wait, she being the mom? Yeah. Uh, No, no, not not
2: my wife, no. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I was going to say, just important, right? Um. Anyhow she is a very guarded woman uh, i've I've been working on figuring it out myself for a long time and started um, trying to figure out her you know she was a orphan in the war and no parents and shuffled around from Switzerland to Belgium to England to escape the war and you know i've i, I um have tried to direct my emotions more towards pity for her as opposed to anger because she's infuriating sometimes um, they they live in the Cayman Islands and we live in Ottawa, so when she comes to visit she comes for three weeks and won't even talk to me so there's definitely an icy kind of what
0: you mean won't what do you mean she won't even talk to you uh like you come into the room and she what and I'll say does she would you like get a cup on of das Vader helmet and pretend that you're not there? I mean, does she stick her hands in her ears and go, Oh la la
2: la? I mean, what what does that mean? to if my wife is out of the house and I come into the kitchen and say, Would you like a cup of tea? She'll just like, Hmm and won't say anything. So she's completely disengaged from me. Um, she used to call here all the time, but she won't call anymore in case I answer the phone. Really yeah. now do, really seriously, do you think
0: this came because you
2: insulted said that her she books? might,
0: might wanna, she might not want to hang on to all these books uh
2: that was the that was the yeah that there's two instances that are always raised when um when we talk about this issue that was one of them, and um my wife's two sisters had had asked me to make sure that mom didn't want to have a fairy tale wedding you know and because we've got tons of gardens that are a chore to stay on top of at the best of times so mm. they didn't want her out there pulling dandelions and trying to make it a, a a princess wait
0: you and your wife have sorry i i lost track of who has the gardens
2: we have yeah we live in ottawa um on a farm so we had the wedding here as opposed to going to Cayman or going to England where the rest of the family is or whatever. Uh, right. so the two sisters and my wife said, try to make sure mom doesn't do too much because she'll, she'll, um, kill herself trying to make it perfect, you know? And I of course came up with, yes, perfection is the enemy of the good aphorism. um, so I think the other instance was the day before the wedding. I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm in charge of the gardens for the wedding. You don't worry about it. And that apparently was uh, an insult to her that she's not a good gardener or that I was, oh. I was pissing on the gardens to claim territory or something. I don't really give a damn about the gardens. I've, I just let them grow with weeds and mow them down, you know, like the ones that I can see. I uh, take care of, but we've got gardens down, you know, there's a gazebo, you know.
0: All right. I think I I don't want to get overly lost in
2: in details. I think (laughs) I I I get the picture. All right. So what's your question? Well, I didn't do my investigation very um, carefully when I uh, got involved in this family, and I now find out that uh, her father holds the title to the farm. So whose this, father?
0: Your wife's father or your... My wife's father. And are they, is she not, are they not together with the mom?
2: They are. Oh, they are together. Okay. Can... Yeah. They, they live in the Cayman Islands and they've given everything that she's got, but they've never given it to her.
0: Oh, so, so they're retaining ownership
2: over it. Yeah. All right. So I'm viewed as an interloper in a colonist and they're yeah and they're Canadian farm um so I've since found out that they're both paranoid like he hired a private investigator to follow her last boyfriend around right to find out are they very wealthy uh I've never asked but they're Cayman
0: Islands farming yeah Ottawa whatever right yeah Mm -hmm. how many times did you meet them before you got married um,
2: Probably six or seven, right? In the recent and,
0: terms, I'm sorry. G- and what is uh, what is your wife's perspective on all of this?
2: Um, she has a major blind spot with regards to her family, so we, you know, we used to talk about it, and then at one point, I said, "Well, your father is emotionally abusive." You know, he threatens to sell the farm and leave her with nothing if she displeases him. Um, and he'll come and visit. And on day two, they'll have a fight and he'll demand that I drive him to the airport because he's going to stay in the hotel for the rest of his visit until his flight home. You know, so he is very manipulative and um, still does all the books for the farm. And, and you know, everything has to be approved through the captain as it were. So, All right. All right. Um, very uh, loving and uh, in every aspect of her life, except when it comes to her parents. So.
0: Mm, but, uh, <laughs> so she's she's schizophrenic, is what you're saying.
2: Uh, it's starting to appear that way. Yeah.
0: So she has a wonderful capacity for love, affection, and openness, but when with regards to her parents, she doesn't or she has uh, a blind spot to it or what
2: Well she is the duckling that's bonded to them I think so um criticism of them is not received well so we went about 6 7 months where her family was just off topic and finally I said well we we can't have a relationship and have a topic that is is not allowed to be discussed so we have to talk about this and um, she went to the Cayman Islands in December to talk to them about why they disliked me so much. <laughs> and her mother's response, which was similar to the first caller last night, was uh, that she didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, so the mother obviously doesn't care for, in my opinion, for or the way she feels or her relationship with her husband. They just seem intent on... on controlling their children. Right. Right. And what's your question? Well, the general consensus is that I should grovel and um, try and make amends to all of the horrible things that I've done. but I'm not sure how writing a letter saying, I'm sorry, I insulted your boxes of coloring books and pamphlets. <laughs> um, or I, I don't know if my question is how to get my wife to recognize this blind spot. And, and like defooing is not an option for her. Um, so I'm just feeling stuck. Right. Um,
0: well, you are stuck. Right? I mean, it's more than a feeling, like the song says, right? It sounds like you are pretty stuck, right? I mean, you're already married, right? So, and how long have you been married for?
2: Three years. Yeah. And do you have kids? No. Right. Right. Are they old? They are. Yeah, he's 88 and she's 80.
0: Yeah, okay, so... <laughs> It may not be an
2: eternal sentence, right? No. Well, that was my strategy at first: was to wait it out. Um, Startle them. No. <laughs> send one of those cans full of tube of snakes. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it's it's getting worse. Is the problem? He he sent our prenuptial agreement to another lawyer and made us redo our a marriage contract um and that was supposed to remove the lien from the property and then he changed his mind afterwards and started talking about passing the lien to his wife who for all I know could marry the Jamaican gardener and pass the lien to him I have no idea how what the what levels Now,
0: I, I, again, you seem to be trying to get me to understand that this is a problematic family. I've, I fully accept that, right? Okay. I mean, I don't want to waste both of our time reestablishing that again and again. All right. All right. So let's start talking about solutions. So you know that there's no – I mean, there's only two possibilities, right?
2: It seems that way.
0: Okay. And what are they?
2: Uh, well, I've I have three possibilities: leave my wife, um, wait it out, or get her into therapy of some sort um, to recognize that she has to acknowledge the way her parents are. Right.
0: And what what do you think it come? What does it cost her to not acknowledge that? Uh, like what what happens is she just says, "Yeah, they're difficult."
2: Well, that's the the thing is that she knows they're difficult, um, but having them always. Whispering in in her ear how I am not to be trusted and I'm, you know, dangerous individual or something um, seems to be affecting her more and more.
0: Right. So they're driving a wedge uh, between you guys, as you said at the beginning, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, in general, in conflict, there's, I mean, where negotiation is impossible. And I don't know whether negotiation is possible or not. It doesn't sound like it, but I'll leave that to your discretion. But if negotiation was possible, you wouldn't be calling right.
2: Well, I don't know even if I do follow the recommended source of or course of action and you know, write a flowery apologetic letter and and beg her mother to come and visit and and take control of the garden because I need help and grovel, whether that's gonna actually achieve anything because
0: Oh, it'll achieve something all right. <laughs>
2: you'll hate yourself. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right? Oh yeah, it'll and you'll resent your wife and I mean don't oh, God no. I mean I, I you know, I'm not a big fan of that.
2: No, well I've been fairly I mean this
0: the, it. you know, there's that crazy little thing called pride, right? I mean and reasonable pride and, and all that, right? I mean, what's your wife gonna think of you if you grovel before these people? What are you gonna think of you?
2: Yeah, well that's why I haven't done it.
0: Yeah, of course, of course. But it seems… And I mean, it, of course it won't, right? Appeasement doesn't work, right? No. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been two Germanys for <laughs> so long, right? <laughs> so appeasement doesn't work, and uh, all that will happen is the demands will escalate, and, and everybody will lose respect for you, right? Including you. Yeah, yeah, so I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't make this. So wh- when negotiation is impossible, there are three choices, right? Uh, and they basically go back to the saber-toothed tiger, right? And the three choices are fight, flight, or freeze. Right? Yeah. That's what you do, a predator. You see there's a giant bear in the wood, you, in woods. You can run away. You can fight it or you can stand still and hold it doesn't, hope it doesn't see you, right? Yes, I'm frozen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, this is all supposed to be pretty quick, right? I mean, you either get away or you get eaten. We're not (laughs) kind of designed for the stress to go on year after year after year, right? Right. So the question then becomes once the freezing becomes unbearable and in this situation, because they are going at your wife and you, right, then this is really a decaying position, right? Yes. You know, like if, if there was some giant inheritance and they were just annoying, but, you know, you whatever. I don't know. I'm just making something up. I, I wouldn't even do it for the inheritance. But, you know, I can understand that,
2: right? Well, I – yeah, I don't want the inheritance. I would rather have my wife than the money or my money. No,
0: wife. no, I understand that. But, I mean, saying if there was, if it was like – if they were just kvetchy and difficult and annoying and whatever, right? But, you know, you could – they're old, Obviously they're not about to change. They had difficult histories it's not like they are causing your wife to have nervous breakdowns or you know whatever right yes so uh, if, if there was not them driving the wedge between you and your wife, then you could probably freeze for a while and hope that time of the grim reaper would solve your problem you know <laughs> over time, not wishing their death, but recognizing <laughs> that they're not like fifty and in great health, right right. So that would be one but but that's not a you know, I don't think that's a viable option, in my opinion, right? It's all just off the cuff, right? I mean, it's the first time we're talking. But if they're working to undermine your wife's relationship with you, then you know, they're they're fucking with your home. Yeah. So yeah, it's time to uh, sling up the nutsack and and do something in my opinion.
2: And this is the part where you tell me what to do. <laughs> no, no I, I I mean, honestly, I mean, I'm,
0: I'm, I'm, really, I'm really not good at telling people what to do. I know. I'm an empiricist, and I know that it's not going to work, right? The important thing is that you need to figure out what to do. But doing nothing is probably going to harm your marriage significantly, right? Yes. So, given that then action is uh, necessary. Now, there are uh, two, two people that you – two groups that you need to deal with or two systems. One is your wife and the other is her parents, right? Yes. Now, you can basically fly out to the parents and you can say, um, no. No, 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 no. I married your daughter. You came to the wedding. You ate my food. You drank my wine. I am now married to your daughter. If you had a big problem with that, you had lots of time to talk about it. But she has made her choice. And you need to start respecting her choice, which means respecting me. You don't have to like me. You don't have to agree with me. But it is disrespectful for your daughter to disrespect her choice for a husband. And I I don't stand for people who disrespect my wife. Right? If you make it about you, you're doomed, right? But if you have someone to stand up for, then you get a second spine, a reinforced spine. They're disrespecting their daughter. It doesn't have anything to do with you, right? I mean it's all history, bullshit, whatever, right? Yeah. But they are disrespecting your wife. I tell you this. I do not have people in my life who disrespect my wife.
2: No. Well, <clears throat> I would make short work of just about anybody else.
0: Yeah, no, no, I understand that. So you can talk to them and you can say, this is unacceptable. And if they're bullies, then they may back down, right? Or they will escalate. But either way, right, things will be out in the open. Yeah. So that's one possibility. I know it's alarming and all that, but I mean, that's just one possibility, and you can tell your wife, listen, I'm going to go and talk to your parents because uh, I, I, I do not like the way they disrespect you. I love you, uh, which means that I I can't sit idly by while people put you down. If you're not able to protect and defend yourself because they're your parents and so on, then I will have to step in because I just I can't in the same way that I would hope you would step in if I was letting people push me around, right? We need each other for support. We need each other for strength. I'm not putting up with it, Right. Yeah. Sorry. And so I'm going to go talk to them about it, right? And then I would say – I would say to my wife, I would say, and listen, you have to protect this marriage. If this marriage is going to work, this marriage is about the future. Your parents are about the past, right? Your parents have had their life. They've had their marriage. They've had their careers. They've had their children. They've made their choices, Right, this is a very fundamental thing for you to understand, and hopefully once you get it, and maybe you do, right? But to to be able to communicate this to your wife, right, and say, look, they've made all their choices, they've had their lives, they're now in the waning undead sunset era of life, right, <laughs> which you know I hope to get to, and we all do, right? No disrespect to the the, but you know he's not going to go out and start to become a a tap aficionado, right? I mean. His choices are pretty limited and he's had his life. He's had his choices. We are still at the beginning of our lives. I mean, I don't know. She's probably not that young if they're in their late 80s. But, but, you know, our lives are still underway. And to have allegiance to the past at the expense of the future is mad, right? Yes. In other words, to want to please your parents who represent the past – and harm the present and the future for the sake of the past is really mad, right? And so you can say, look, they're disrespecting me, then they're disrespecting you. This doesn't mean that they're evil people. It doesn't mean that we can never see them again or never talk to them again. But we have to have the commitment to each other. And you can say, I would say, do you remember the vows? The vows are super, super serious in marriage. You know, people mouth them and they say them, but I tell you, you my wife and I, they're printed out. They're hung on the wall. And, you know, you get lost, you look at a map. When you're under pressure, when you're losing your way, you look at your vows. What did we promise each other? Right, to love, to honor, to respect. Who? Your parents? No. Me, right? Right. Me. That is the marriage. The vows are the marriage. Nothing more, nothing less. The vows are the marriage. You made your vows to me, honey, not to your parents. Now, if you're going to disown those vows, then our marriage is taking a serious, serious blow. Because this isn't shit that you get to change later. Like, there's nobody who says in their vows, you know, love, honor, respect, whatever it's going to be. Well, but, you know, subject to revision. (laughs) and
2: circumstance yeah
0: yeah you know well unless i get some pressure from you know my heritage of a mother or something like that or unless there's something really good on tv or unless i spy some young hottie on a business trip or you know there's no there's no stars there's no asterisks in these vows right that's what we promised this was not a show we were not Echoing empty words of habit and tradition, we made these vows. The vows are are the marriage. And you need to read the vows, and you need to reconnect with the vows, and you need to remind each other of the vows. The vows is the integrity, and marriage is nothing more or nothing less than integrity. Keeping your word, keeping your promise, keeping the deal, right? Yeah. That's all that marriage is. It's integrity to the vows. And you can just say to her, look, the vows are serious. There's a reason we say them in front of everyone and we make them eternal. And there's a reason that a man and a wife or a man and a man or a woman and a woman or whoever, there's a reason why you make those vows to each other and not to the community, to each other and not to the parents, to the future and not to the past, right? Yes, And anyone who seeks to to come between you and your vows is attempting to undo your integrity, your virtue, and therefore your marriage.
2: Yeah. Well, I give my wife credit for flying down there for a week and spending time trying to tell them that. Um, But…
0: Well, see, no, no, uh, and I, I, you know, I'm glad she did that. Obviously, that's a good step. But you don't tr- try to tell someone something, right? I don't like. We used to do this thing in theater school, right? We, we were all, oh so insultingly described young white and bougie, which means bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. But you know, the, the holy grail was. The big cry, you know, like if you're in acting school and you have a sad scene and you get the big cry, then that's great acting, right? And uh, there was a guy who was trying to cry in some scene and the acting teacher said, hey, what, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm, I'm trying to cry, <laughs> right? Because, you know, because I'm acting. And she said, what? No, 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 no. And she said, stand up. And he stood up. And she said – Try to sit in that chair," he said. "What?" She said, "Try to sit in that chair." And I don't know. He like pretended he had cramps or whatever. Though no, was just like she said, this is ludicrous, right? What I'm asking you to do, you to do, doesn't make any sense. And she said, "So sit in the chair," and he just sat in the chair, right? And she said, "Do you understand?" And we kind of all got it, right? You don't try to cry. You don't try to be virtuous. You don't try to be good. You don't try to have people listen to you. You don't try to get people to understand you. You don't try to be liked. You live virtuously. You don't try to tell people something. You tell people something. Right? I mean, it's, it's Yoda, right? Yeah. Do or do not. There is no try. So she went to tell them something, right? And she doesn't have to never talk to them. But if they start putting you down, she has to say, I'm not listening to this. If you're going to talk about this, I'm not having a conversation with you right now. Right? Because they are asking her to break her vows. They are asking her to switch her loyalties. They are asking her to reject the one person she promised to love forever, right?
2: Yeah.
0: No. No, no. Do not counsel me to evil. I mean, people around me, they don't always have to encourage me to virtue, but they sure as shit should not be counseling me to evil. And – Promising someone to love, to honor, to respect, to whatever. I don't know what your vows were. It doesn't usually matter, but I'm sure they weren't small. To counsel someone to break the law of love is like telling someone suicidal to take this gun. Or like telling a child who's going to jump from too high a spot, they'll be fine. Right? Yeah. No, no, no. Now, I mean, this is hers, right? Do the vows mean anything? Of course they mean something. But that's your map. And th- and you go to the vows when you lose your way, as I said, right?
2: Yeah. No, this is uh, a good strategy for coaching her through it. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, look, she's not going to say I didn't really mean the vows, right? No. Definitely right? not. I mean she certainly doesn't sound like that kind of person, right? No. Okay, so she so so that then debate is over, right? That the whole point of the vows in marriage is to end debate. Right? Where does your loyalty lie? With your spouse. That's it. That 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 anyone who then interferes with the loyalty of the spouse is an enemy. And that doesn't mean never cross my doorstep, but it's like, oh, I'm sorry, you're bringing this up. I'm going to hang up if you keep talking about this. You just, I mean, sorry, you were counseling me to evil. You were counseling me to break my virtue and to break my promise, to break my vow, right? And I won't, I I mean, I, I won't have that. I just, it's not, it's not an option. There's no. I promise to love, honor, and respect you forever, unless some conniving bastard talks me out of it.
2: Yeah, her older sister married someone they didn't like, and they didn't speak with her for six years.
0: Well, lucky her.
2: Well, unfortunately, well, fortunately for her, now they have a great relationship because they paid the consequences. Who, who paid the consequences? The parents. The parents suffered the consequences of not having their oldest daughter in their lives for six years. Right. And that, I think, is the template that my wife is working on.
0: Yeah, you know, you've got a lot of propaganda, right? Yeah. I mean, so now they have a great relationship. Come on.
2: Well, a bearable, a bearable relationship, I guess.
0: Uh, yeah, but I mean, seriously, you got to be precise with this kind of stuff right? <laughs> make things up you know well it's they great cantankerous and vicious and nasty and underhanded and conniving but they have a great relationship <laughs> with this right i mean right yeah but no it's i mean promises are power right the, 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 you know this the old say give me a lever big enough i can move the world Vows and promises and commitments are power. I mean, you have the power over your wife to say, stand by your vows. Take seriously that which is the foundation of our marriage and why we call it a marriage rather than hanging out, right? Right. Rather than a highly extended booty call, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's just power, right? My, my when I make a promise to my daughter, she has power over me. Right? Yeah. It promises a surrender of power to the other person and a desperate plea, a desperate plea for them to remind you what your commitments are. Right? So you shouldn't have to do much. It's just a reminder. She promised you. Remind her of the promise. She'll take it from there. Don't sweat it. Don't, like, try to – it's just, hey, this was these were the vows we made. Now, if you want to revisit these vows, then we're revisiting the marriage. But you don't get to make the vows and then wriggle out of them in some way later, right? I mean, that's, 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 that's fraud. I'm not saying your wife is doing that in any conscious way. But it's fraudulent, right?
2: Yeah, no, well, in her case uh... – it's she's terrified of her parents, and is um, under the illusion that she loves them.
0: Yeah, no, I, I get all of that. I, I really, I do, and I, I, you know, I mean, with great sympathy, with great sympathy towards your wife. But the vows are the vows, right? I don't get to buy a like. I don't get to take a car loan out, right, and sign on a dotted line for four years, then say six months later, I, you know. I don't really like the car that much. I think I'm gonna stop paying. Yes. They have power over me because I signed on the dotted line. Nobody made me to, nobody forced me to. Right? They have power, they can put me in jail. Because I signed on the dotted line, that gives people power over me. And now in, in return, I got a car. <laughs> right, Which I didn't have the money for I didn't want to pay the money for at the time Right, So there's an, it's not like they're dominating me I mean it's an exchange of value She got your commitment, she got your monogamy She got your shared finances did, did,
2: Does she work as well? Um, yes, she works very hard
0: Okay, good, right. so so you're both getting each other's shared finances and and all of that kind of good stuff and your companionship and all that, she got a sexual partner, and she got all and she got security, right? Because I assume you aren't some globe-trotting set of swingers, right? So she got security, monogamy, stability, commitment. she got all those goodies, right? Yeah. And the price for those goodies is. Live by the fucking vows, right? That's what you pay for the goodies is the vows. Everybody wants the goodies. Nobody wants to pay the vows. I mean, of course. Of course, we all want something for nothing. That's how society advances in the free market and how it decays in a state of society, right? But I would just, you know, hey, get the vows. I'm sure you remember them. Write them out.
2: No, they're say, upstairs in a
0: closet. I'll hang good, them on the wall. Good, okay. <laughs> after, after our conversation, I'll hang them on the wall. You know, people sometimes say to me, it's time to come out of the closet, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, just sit down and say, okay, um, I, I know that the American government doesn't follow the Constitution, but we have a Constitution which we should respect, which is here, right? Tell me in this where your allegiance is supposed to be greater for your parents. Tell me in this where... You're supposed to put up with people chiseling away at the foundation of our marriage. Tell me, because this is what I signed on for, and this is what you signed on for, and this is non-revocable. I mean, you can choose to leave a marriage, right? Of course, right? But it is not revocable to to change and say, well, well yes, but if my parents are really putting pressure on me, then I'll... Start working against my. Husband. I mean, it's just it's not it's not revocable because it wasn't revocable in the initial contract, right? You know, I'd be divorced from my wife and I. Not that it's ever been a topic. Not that it's ever been on the table. Not that it's ever been discussed. Not that right. It's simply not an option. It's never going to happen. <laughs> One of us is coming out of here dead. <laughs> Hopefully later rather than sooner. But it's it, it's not it's not an option. Because that's not what we promised and we thought very seriously about it and we discussed everything beforehand and you know, we knew when we crossed over that threshold, we knew when we made those vows, that's it. And if people started fucking with our marriage, hey, we go back to the vows. Not an option. I mean it is that level of seriousness that is the foundation of stability in what I consider the greatest institution in the world. So… Hopefully, uh, it's just a reminder, right?
2: Yeah. No, I, I love the vows and I love the marriage.
0: Well, and great. I'm sure you, – and your wife does too, I'm sure.
2: She does. Right?
0: She's just lost her way and she's submitting to pressure rather than keeping her integrity, which happens to all of us, right? And so I'm not trying to boo bad wife or anything like that. And it will happen to you at some point in the marriage, right? You'll be tempted. You'll be whatever, right? It will happen to you, and then your wife got to say, hey, hey, Buster, (laughs) right? Yeah. Remember how you talked to me about all these values? Well, this is it, right?
2: Yes. Well, I've not thought of it exactly that way. I've thought of it more along the lines of, if a grizzly came charging out of the woods, I would wrestle it for her. But if we saw a grizzly a kilometer away, and she said, I want you to go wrestle that grizzly for me, I would probably try and convince her not to do it. Right. Or not, not to make me do it. So
0: Now, now she can say, listen, I, I, I don't want to disrespect the marriage, but I can't stand up to my parents. That's fine. Then you stand up for her parents for her. I mean, that's, you know, whatever, right? Division of labor, I mean, that's all fine. Yeah. But she, she just has to recognize that how it gets implemented doesn't matter. Fundamentally, right? But the direction, for loyalty, is uh, is is crucial, right?
2: Yes, I've I've thought of paying a surprise visit to the Cayman Islands and and the the effects it would have. It, it's one of my private fantasies that I indulge in.
0: No, and I get it. I mean, yeah, you may always well stand tall and be the hero and so on. And I I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying that it has to be in, in the context of your wife, right? And your wife's support. It's her relationship with her parents. Yeah. Fundamentally, I mean, you just this is not you, you meet these people at a party. You're not like, hey, let's hang out for the next thirty years, right? <laughs> no. Right? I mean, they're only there because they're her parents, right? So it's got to be a united front. Because look, we all imagine, we all fantasize that there's some way to just go down and make the big speech. And then people are like part ways, you know, like the Red Sea before Moses and, and all that, right? But that's all nonsense. I mean even, even if you startle them into giving way in the moment, I mean what's going to happen in a week or two? They're just going to slither around, find some other way with renewed venom and, you know, as long as they're in your life, you can't fundamentally fight them. Your wife can set limits and you can support her on that. But there's no great speech that, you know, keeps that, that establishes boundaries, and keeps them there. I mean, the moment you said – I mean, think of the Constitution. was this giant great speech against government, set up these boundaries, and what happened? People began weaseling out at them before the ink was dry.
2: It never works. Yeah. Well, thank you for reminding me of that.
0: You're welcome. I'm uh... – I'm. I'm glad. It sounds like it was helpful, and it we'll was. Hope, uh, you'll get a chance to let us know how it goes.
2: No, you cut it to the bare bones for me, so you've given me a solid leg to stand on again, and uh, I look forward to having a longer conversation with her about this.
0: Good, good. All right. Well, glad to have, glad to have been of help. All right, Mr. Mike. Thank you, Steph. Always <laughs> with the Yes. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye.
1: All right. Ray is up next. Uh, He wrote in and said, I've isolated myself throughout my life. Last summer, I quit my full-time job to pursue a career in music and became even more isolated while I focused on the project. Do you have any suggestions about how to emerge from isolation? Where are all the good people hiding?
0: Oh, brother. Brother Ray, are you on? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Hey. Do you remember the third word? Do you remember the third word of what you wrote in with? What was it? I've isolated. What was the third (laughs) word? Myself. Eh. No, no, no. No, no, no. You mean from the womb? You mean from the crib? From infancy? When people came to lovingly change your diaper, did you actually attempt to take your John Thomas, aim it right, and pee in their eyeball? No. No, isolated yourself. What does that mean? How is it hundred percent your fault?
3: Yeah, it's not my it's not my fault. But like, that's that's how I how how I look at it.
0: Hmm. I said that's what you're going with. That's how I look at it. Of course, that's how you look at it. I get that. That's what you said, right? (laughs)
3: Yeah, I mean, I I know it's a it's not the right way to look at it, but that's the uh, the way that I feel. Well, as far as like like I've I've been I've been isolated.
0: Okay, well, good. Okay, so that's closer to the truth. So, how were you isolated as a child?
3: Well, um, in in general, like I I. I couldn't relate to a lot of the people in my family like I'm, i'm the youngest of four and um my my oldest um the closest sibling to me is my brother he's three years older than me and um i used to get bullied by him a lot and i i also worshiped him too which was weird but um i i was really um at some point in time, like I realized, like it was better for me to stay to myself, uh, with within the family anyway, than it was for me to actually try to, um, be around. Uh huh. And and I just I just went with that, you know. And and I and I kept that I kept that going for for a long time. And it's not that I didn't have, like, people around me as far as, like, friends and, like, proximity-wise, but I didn't, uh, and I don't really now have anyone, like, I could really have, like, a deep conversation with or just express, you know, what I'm expressing to you right now. Like, I, I don't have too many people in my life where I could just say, like, hey, I'm feeling, you know, isolated right now. You know, how can you help me to, to get over that?
0: Right. So, now we get to the third phase, right? So, the first phase is you saying, I isolated myself. The second phase is you saying, people in my family, I couldn't relate to people in my family. Mm-hmm. And the third phase, which is what you've described, is that you were driven into isolation through abuse. Yeah. I understand? Mm-hmm. Do you? Yeah, I do. That was a mighty quick. Mm-hmm no, I, for I've been a very big rewriting of the the, the narrative, right?
3: Yeah, I, I I get what you're saying. Like I've been thinking about this for a long time too, and and I realize that I've I've been abused, you know, and it was um. It's hard, like it's hard for me to admit that, or even to talk about it, with no. that.
0: No, 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 and sorry, sorry. It's not hard for you to admit that, and it's not hard for you to talk about it. It's hard for other people in your family when you do that, but it's not hard for you, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, what, what, what's the negative for you, right? That's just a fact. You're right. Right?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, no, it's not It's not hard for you. It's inconvenient for others, right? Yeah. You know, like the the bank worker, who's got the uh, the the bank thief, right? The bank robber's got a gun to his head, and he says, "Well, you know, it's uh, it's inconvenient for me to push the alarm button, right?" Hmm. What's he really saying? It's, in- it's inconvenient for the bank robber for me to push the alarm button, right? Which is why he's got his gun to my head, right? So that's what I'm trying to point out, right?
3: Yeah. So when I when I said it's inconvenient, uh, are you saying that like it was? It's more of me being. Oh, I'm doing it again, huh? I'm I'm trying to understand. Right. So mm-hmm. it's like it's it's me being afraid of the consequences of of uh, me talking about being abused as a child.
0: Right. Okay. How convenient it is for people. How convenient is it? Sorry. For people who. Not at all. If, sorry, how inconvenient – how convenient is it for, – yeah, for if you bring up abuse within your family, if you bring up mistreatment, if you bring up harmful things that happened to you as a child, how convenient it is? is it for your abusers?
3: Yeah, it's not convenient for them at all.
0: No, of course not. And so then you have to keep a secret, right? Yeah. You have to keep a secret called bad stuff happened to my family. Right? And we often will displace this to siblings, Right. And it's not like siblings are completely blameless, particularly the older kids. But come on. I mean, it's, it's the parents who are responsible for setting the tone in the family. And it's the parents who are damn well responsible with making sure that the younger siblings are treated well. With greater compassion and sympathy because of their youth, right? Right. So, you know, if you start bringing up some of this stuff, how convenient is it? for everyone around you, well, it's, it's pretty fucking inconvenient, right? Right. I mean, the bank robbers don't want security cameras installed in the bank, right? It's kind of inconvenient for them, right? Yeah. A lot of shoplifters don't like those anti-theft devices. Very inconvenient for them, right? hmm Politicians don't like the Constitution. Well, you get the picture. I don't need to... <laughs> Completely belabor the obvious, right? Right. Right. So you were driven into isolation, which is absolute agony for children. It's absolute agony for children. We're social beings. And we have a thirst for adult interaction. I mean I'll tell you this. There are a lot of not a lot of dads around during the day. And those who are along with the moms are kind of glued to their Cell phones, well, the kids. So I'm in there in the play centers and all that, setting up games and playing stuff, and I I get swarmed by kids who are – it kind of bugs, bugs Isabella, right, if she wants time just with me. But I get swarmed by kids who just need some structure, some adult interaction, some sense of care or concern or connection or contact or something like that swarmed kids are dying for this stuff right mm-hmm. and and so were you and so was i so you were driven into isolation because human contact was painful Right, You only retreat to a cell when the whole world is on fire, right? Yeah. You say, well, I'm choosing this cell. Well, I, I, I put myself in prison. No, the world was on fire and you retreated to a cell, right? And you will stay in that cell until you accept the truth of why you were there, right? Right. I mean, if we think the sentence is self-imposed or we think that the sentence is just, we can't fight it. I was spanked because I was a bad kid. I watched the movie Frozen. The guy says, uh, spoiler alert. (laughs) Who cares? It's a kid's film, right? Prince Hans, I think his name is. He says, I'm the youngest of 12 brothers, and a couple of my older brothers pretended I was invisible for two years. And the woman says, that's awful. And he says, nah, it's just what brothers do. Right? (laughs) And then he turns out to be totally evil. Well, that's because he's rejecting his torment. Right? He's sealed himself off from the hurt of people pretending that you're invisible for two years, which for a child is an eternity. Literally an eternity, right? Uh Mm-hmm. And so you can't get out of that prison if you think that you've been sentenced justly. Or you think that you have sentenced yourself for your wrongdoing then there's no there's no way to escape it because the sentence is just, and thus, the most moral p- people with the worst principles are the greatest self attackers because we want to be good and we want to be honest and we want to be just and we want to be fair right mm-hmm. and so these are the people who if they've done something wrong, will surrender themselves to the police and manfully accept their punishment and blah bloody, blah, blah blah right? Right.
3: So how do I do that? right? How do I get myself out of the cell?
0: Out of what? Out of the cell? Yeah. Well, recognizing that you didn't put yourself in there. You were unjustly imprisoned. And that there's no jailer, right? If you think you're justly imprisoned or you deserve it, you're your own jailer and you can't escape, right? Welcome to wherever you are. <laughs> wherever you are, there's a prison, right? You were unjustly imprisoned and the jailers are long gone. This is adulthood, right? Mm-hmm. 17.999 to 18 years. Bing! Jailers are gone, baby. You're an adult. For some of us around me, so of happened younger, around 15 or so. For some people, it happens older. But doesn't matter if you think you're in prison, which is what you started the conversation off with, right? Which is why he said, I isolate myself, right? Mm -hmm. So you're judge, jury, and executioner, and there's no way out of the prison. And you say, well, I just didn't get along with I couldn't connect with the people in my family. Well, it's still your fault. You're still putting – I couldn't do X, right? Mm -hmm. You don't hear a lot of people in there. Memoirs of concentration camps say, you know, as a Jew, I, I just – I couldn't quite connect with the Nazi guards. I, it's an extreme example, right? I'm, yeah. But I hope you get the principle, right? Yeah, I do. So you were unjustly imprisoned. You were driven into prison because the world was on fire. And the prison was the only place that wasn't burning – Right. Isolation was the only place you weren't abused, right? Right. The world's on fire, I'm going into my prison, but the world cooled long ago and there are no guards and there's no lock on the door. And you walk and walk out any time, any time you decide to lift the verdict and change the ethics. You can walk out anytime. You know, people who – good people who were harmed as children who were self-attacking, which is I think what you were doing at the beginning, probably what you've been doing for a long time. Do you know what they look like to me? They look like people in gulags or people in concentration camps. I mean just take an extreme example, right? Some Jew in a concentration camp, right? And they say – You're sentenced to this concentration camp for 10 years, right? And two years after they sentence him to the concentration camp for 10 years, the liberators come and the Nazi regime is overthrown. And they open the doors and they say, you can all come out now. And he says, sorry, man. I got eight years to go. Hmm. And they say, well, you know, are you, 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 you crazy? You can leave. Well, I was tried in a German court. I was convicted. Uh, I was found to be Jewish. I am, in fact, Jewish. Those were the laws. Sorry, I got to keep myself on 1,000 or 500 calories a day. And I've got to stay right here until my eight years are up. Holy crap. I mean, do do you realize how deranged a perspective that is? I mean, we'd have sympathy for somebody that shattered. But we would want to sit down with that person and say, the Nazis were unjust. The sentence is unjust. You were a victim. Get out. Out of the prison. Mm -hmm. But first of all, you have to recognize that the sentence was unjust and imposed upon you unjustly, immorally. And that the Jew who stays eight extra years in the concentration camp with no guards and no locks, eating berries and still working away, blowing ash in a defunct forge. All he's doing is delighting the Nazis. All he's doing is delighting the sadists. All he's doing is delighting the unjust, the vampiric bone marrow eaters of humanity who take great joy in smashing and detonating the human spirit. They have broken him so thoroughly that if they could install a webcam and watch him shuffling around eating his twigs and berries and pretending to work At a Forge Long Dead. They would wake up and they would giggle at their pancakes and they say, We really got that one, didn't we? I mean, he could walk out and he's still serving us. We're not even there and he's still serving us. There's no power compelling him to stay, yet still he stays. Oh, he got him good. He now loves Big Brother, right? Yeah.
3: So... I I try to to realize that as far as like I, I understand what you're saying, and and I and I really like uh, I've tried to speak with my parents and my brothers and my sisters, just tell them about like my experience, and it it only like frustrates me more, and and like recently I just like separated myself from them completely or not not really completely my my parents I did but my brother he calls me from time to time and it's just like even even um like I'm I moved I, I also moved away so I moved away like uh 6 months ago or 7 months ago and I haven't been back to like my parents house or even like we're around the area for for a while Just so that I can, you
0: know. No, but, sorry to interrupt you, but the analogy of the story that I told you about the Jew in the concentration camp, Mm -hmm. what is particularly heartbreaking is that the Nazis are gone. So, yeah, you may have broken, you may have separated and so on. Mm -hmm. But the Nazis are gone in this story. What's not gone is his self-attack. It's his ownership of the evil that was done to him as if it was self generated, right? Mm-hmm. Separating from your family does you no good at all, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. If you were abused by your family, raging and railing against the immorality and injustice of the abuse, that's the key. The Jew steps out of the concentration camp because he knows the concentration camp is a great evil and an unjust evil, right? hmm And you started off this conversation by saying, I isolated myself. I challenged you on that. You took up a secondary defensive position. I wasn't able to connect with my family, right? Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Literally, it's like saying, the Nazis are gone. Jew, get out of the concentration camp. And he says, I put myself here. I have to stay. It's like, no, you were marched at gunpoint by the Nazis. Right? Yeah. You weren't here by choice. So how could you have done this? I mean, empirically, how could he possibly have done it to himself and he was frog marched there at gunpoint? Right? Right you were born into the family, how could you possibly have done it to yourself? Evil bitch sociopath nature put you there by fucking accident, right?
4: Yeah.
0: You didn't choose a goddamn thing in it. How can it be that you have any responsibility for what your family did to you as a baby, as a toddler, as a child? I don't have any responsibility. Right. Do you understand that the nationalism of the family is the foundation for almost all the world's evils? You know, when I talk about sports and I say cheering a a group that is just geographically proximate to you. When I talk about countries cheering an accidental group that is geographically proximate to you. And people say, yeah, that's crazy. And I start talking about a family and people are like, whoa, 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 hey, 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 hey. Now that's different, right? No, it's not. In fact, the family predicates all, predates all of the other ones. You would make – you would have no respect for me if I said I'm great because I'm Irish, Right? I'm great because I'm white. I'm great because I'm tall. I'm great because I have an accent. I, mean, I didn't earn any of these things. I happened to be born in Ireland. I happened to be tall. I was born white, and I have an accent. I didn't earn them. I didn't study them. They just happened to me. But do you understand that the flip side of taking pride in accident and geography and proximity, what's more insane than taking pride in it is taking shame in it. Right? You got that, right? You happened to be born in a family. If they raised you well and they were good parents and they loved you and they did their best and and their best was good, fantastic. You are lucky. If you inherit a lot of money, that does not make you a good businessman. If you inherit very little money, it doesn't make you a bad businessman. One person is lucky. One person is unlucky. For the man to take pride in luck is as insane. In fact, is less insane than for the man to self attack on bad luck. Right?
3: I feel like I could understand what you're saying. Like I, I get it, and I, and I and I could like I guess I could I could talk through it too. But I would still, when describing like. My situation, I would still say, like, I feel alone or I'm, I'm isolated. You know, like, I would still...
0: No, no, but that's not how you started the conversation. Oh, okay. Now what you're saying is, yes, I feel alone and I am isolated. For sure. hmm But that's not how you started the conversation. And that's what I wanted to point out. Okay.
3: You're right. I, I, didn't, I didn't start the conversation like that.
0: There is no shame whatsoever in where you were born what's your ethnicity
3: um i'm black uh my parents my parents are from from haiti
0: right is there any shame in being black no fuck no of course not (laughs) of course not right no yeah i mean jesus christ right (laughs) i mean it's nonsense is there any virtue in being born into a christian family and being christian hell no Is there any virtue in being an atheist because you came from an atheist family? Hell no. Mm -hmm. No moral debt or reward accumulates until you're an adult. Everything that happens before that is a completely infinite get out of guilt, get out of pride free card. I mean would I be doing this podcasting if I had been born to a dirt farmer in Kenya? Highly unlikely, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm lucky that I even speak English, it happens to be a pretty common language. I spoke Urdu, <laughs> be a little trickier, right? Mm-hmm. To have the kind of worldwide impact that the show has, right? So, black, white, male, female, it's just an accident. And accident doesn't mean bad, just whatever, eh? Right? hmm And the family that you're born into holds no power to morally reward or damn you in any way, shape, or form, any more than the country that you're born into can make you a better or worse person for which you can take pride or damn yourself. If you were mistreated by your family... There is no shame in that at all. There's no guilt in that. There's no self-attack that can rationally come out of that situation. There's sorrow and there's sympathy if you are mistreated. But the idea rationally – I'm not talking emotionally. I'm rationally. Mm -hmm. The idea that you would self-attack for where you happened to be born – in other words that you would blame yourself for the negative effects of your accidental circumstances makes no sense right
3: how do you how do you talk about it without like what like to say that i was bullied when i was a kid or i was spanked as a child i I would just say it like that like i was just spanked or
0: well i mean Evil was done unto me as a child. I was surrounded by evildoers. And those evildoers were supported by inert fucking cowards who wouldn't even pick up the phone when they heard a child being beaten, right? Wouldn't even call the cops, wouldn't even call CPS, any of that stuff, right? Maybe they liked it, I don't know. But I was born into an evil clan. Sorry, I was born into the mafia. That doesn't make me a hitman.
3: Right? Yeah.
0: I was born to criminals. I survived being raised by criminals. I take pride in that. But the idea that I would then be ashamed?
3: I could, like, imagining myself say, like, those words to, to people that I know they'll look at me like i'm overreacting or i'm i'm blowing it out of proportion like that's
0: that's how oh, but that that just but that has nothing to do with you right i mean this doesn't have anything to do with you i mean nazis claim the holocaust never happened right it's got nothing to do with right mm. The historical fact is just to do with emotional defenses, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when people – like when I say, yeah, I was abused as a child, people get uncomfortable. Do you know why they get uncomfortable? Because they goddamn well know some child who's at high risk and they've done nothing. And they're terrified of that child coming forward and saying – You know what? I was abused. And you know what? All these people around me, yourself included, my good sir or madam, did fuck all about it. You piece of shit. It's got nothing to do with me. They're just afraid that people are actually talking about abuse as children. Because everybody knows somebody. Come on. One out of five boys sexually abused? Depending on how you count it one out of four, one out of three girls. 90% of children in America spanked. 25% of those spanked with implements hard enough to leave welts and bruises. I mean, everybody knows somebody, some kid that they're failing to protect. And they're all hoping that this giant conspiracy of silence is just gonna continue, right? And they're going to get away with it, right? They're going to get away with it. They're going to get away with failing to protect the children in their lives. They're taking a gamble, right? Taking a a roll of the dice, right? And the roll of the dice is, well, if I do nothing, fuck, so what? People have been doing nothing pretty much for thousands of years. Everybody gets away with it. Well, Sorry. Not no more, people. Right? Sorry, your old snake eyes this time. <laughs> right. So when I talk about it, there's this deafening thunderclap of silence. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, libertarians fight tooth and nail over stupid shit like how big should the government be. But I've been spending uh, seven or eight years raising the topic of child abuse and spanking, and there's this, you know, massive thunderclap of silence. Is that to do with me? Of course not. Is it to do with my arguments? Of course not. It's just this great fear that everyone has that the day of reckoning draweth near. That the conspiracy of silence is about to crack and detonate, and they will be named. As among the wrongdoers, either the child abusers or the people who knew that there were significant risk factors and did nothing. I did nothing. I don't mean going up and confronting parents individually, but just speaking out about it. Right. And accepting that it's an essential topic. So when you say, look, I was harmed as a child and people get uncomfortable and people start talking about it and people want to change the subject and people attack you, it's got nothing to do with you. I mean there's probably not one person in a thousand who can actually listen to you as an individual for your own sake without their own bullshit cluttering up the mix. Mm. So it's just their own guilt and shame at their own moral cowardice that is occurring. It doesn't have anything to do with you in any way, shape, or form. That's part of the narcissism of moral cowardice. You're always worried about being exposed. And so everything has to be about you. Ooh, is that is that light of truth about children getting closer or further away? Am I going to be exposed? Am I going to be known? Are the people, are the children I've failed To help make safe, going to grow up and point their fingers at me? Is there any asshole out there supporting children when they grow up doing that? Oh, I hate that guy. It doesn't have anything to do with me. The people who hate me for talking about child abuse and saying, hey, if you were hurt by your parents, go talk to your parents. Get a therapist. Work that shit out. And if you have unrepentant abuses in your life, well, all doors open both ways, right? And when people get mad at me about uh, it's got nothing to do with me. It's nothing to do with my argument. I'm just out there doing my thing, speaking the truth and supporting people in the exposure of child abusers and all those who supported them, which is most people in society fall into one of either category. And we're not even talking things as esoteric as you sent me to government schools, right? Hmm. I mean, I've never had someone say, yeah, I was sent to a government school, ah, child abusers, right? I'm not even talking, I'm talking about the stuff that's fucking illegal in our current society. You hit a child with implements, for the most part, in most of the West, it's illegal. You beat a child, it's illegal. You fail to get a child sufficient medical attention, that's evil. You fail to adequately Feed and clothe your child, that's evil. You fail and illegal, right? These are all criminals, right? But most people in the world, at least – I say most people in the world. I think that's a fair statement. Most people in the world, even by the current laws, are harming children or supporting the harm of children by enabling the behavior. By right? So I just really – you need that perspective, we are surrounded by people who harm children even by the standards of the laws around. And once you get into libertarianism, homeschooling, unschooling, anarchism, atheism, then the degree of harm that you see in society is such an evil, bloody supernova that it irradiates your eyeballs and shoots them out through the back of your head. in like a white laser lights of horror. So when you're talking about your history, you are provoking the guilt of people who've harmed children. I mean, 50% of sibling relationships are abusive. You start talking about being harmed as a child. How many people, even if they don't have their own children, were assholes to their own siblings or who teased or tormented the broken children in their school or who failed to stand up to people who were doing that? We all feel shitty about our moral cowardice to do with the protection of children. And like all people who have immense guilt, we hate and fear anything which provokes that guilt. And we praise anything which diminishes that guilt. So when you start talking about the harm that you experienced... People will react negatively and they will diminish and they will attack and they will oppose and they will ignore and they will maybe grudgingly sit through it and then never bring it up again. Mm -hmm. It's nothing to do with you. It's their own guilt. That's the shit sandwich you have to eat as a moral coward and this is the manipulative and controlling person you have to become if you are a moral coward around the protection of children. So I hope that helps – To put that in some perspective,
3: yeah, yeah, it it does. And when, like, I I talk to people about it, like you said, they'll they'll get quiet and try to change the subject and never bring it up again. Mm -hmm. And um, what what happens then? You know, like, I I don't want to um, like it, it. it seems to me like I can't no longer really talk to that person anymore.
0: Yeah, you can ask them, you know, you seem uncomfortable or is there anything you want to share with me? And maybe they'll say, you know, I don't know why this is really bringing up a lot of uncomfortable stuff for me. I don't know. I mean, I remember this kid in, in summer camp who everybody picked on and I didn't pick on him, but I really didn't, I felt this urge to befriend him. And I felt this urge, like his, this kid was really upset. And and I just kind of stepped over, I stepped around him. I didn't really do anything about it. I've really felt bad about that. And you're bringing up like the stuff that you experienced as a child. It makes me, you know, maybe they'll talk about something like that. I don't know. Maybe there's a possibility for a breakthrough, but most people, you know, just double down on their defenses, right? Because, you know, they've worked for thousands of years. Who's not going to expect that they're going to keep working, right? And, uh, it's your choice, of course. I just, I know, I'm an empiricist. I mean, if, if somebody's not open to change, I accept that they're not open to change. I
4: just Yeah.
0: Had this in a call last night, right? I mean if somebody says I'm not gonna change, or if somebody shows no evidence of wanting to change, or even admitting there's a problem, I'm like, Well, you know, thank you for the information. That's all people are saying to you all the time. They're giving you massive information about their capacity for change and curiosity and intimacy and reason and virtue and empiricism. And when people actively deny reality and oppose reality, whether it's your reality or empirical reality, they're just telling you I am incapable of change and all I will do is defend my prejudices. Well, okay. You know, as a, as a black guy, I'm sure you, you don't sort of sidle up to a clan picnic and say, hey, guys, <laughs> you want to rethink any of this stuff at all? Not at all. No, you don't, Right. So as that process
3: goes on, I find myself, you know, not wanting to um, go back to those conversations. Like, I I don't want to keep bringing up topics that people would be uncomfortable with. So I I just, you know, keep myself away from them. And little by
0: little. The topics or the people? The people. Right.
3: And now, little by little, like... the people that I would call close are, are like dwindling, you know.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the reality is that you thought you had a table full of people, and it turns out you've got a table full of zombies with history up their history hand puppet hands up their ass, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you just you need to turn the lights on and and see who whose pupils dilate, right? Right. The illusion of connection. Kills any capacity for real connection. Right, the illusion of knowledge kills the pursuit of knowledge. If you think you know something and you're wrong, you stop looking for it. Right.
3: Yeah, and I've heard I've heard you talk about this before. Like, um, as soon as you start really bringing like philosophy into your life and really taking a good look at your relationships, you start to see that they're they're not as strong as you thought they were, and, and then you'll find that you know the majority of them you know aren't what you thought they were
0: yeah most most what are called relationships are pacts of non-existence Mm -hmm. right we'll go cheer at the same sports team and we'll pretend that we're existing We'll go salute the flag and fold it the right way and we'll pretend that we're existing. We all wear the same uniform and we'll pretend that we're existing. We'll all participate in the democratic process and we'll pretend that we're existing. We'll all talk about the weather and pretend that we're existing. It's a pact of existence predicated on non-existence. Mm-hmm. And the moment that you stop participating in this let's pretend we're alive, well, you, you find out. Yeah, that old police song, is anybody alive in here? Nobody but us, right? Who's uh, who's alive? Who's capable of listening and thinking and who's got curiosity? Who's willing to change perspective based on new information, right? Who is not uh, dead from the neck up? Well, you can find that out pretty easily. Just be yourself and see. Speak honestly what's on your mind in the moment, what you think and feel. And find out how people respond. It's, it's, a very, it's terrifyingly easy to do. Everyone is always five to 10 minutes from the truth about their relationships.
3: Mm.
0: Everyone. And that five to 10 minutes, and that's pretty generous, it probably is about 30 to 60 seconds. People live 80, 90, 100 years, 36, 30 to 60 seconds away from discovering the truth about what they think of as their relationships. Keeping that knowledge at bay. Is so unbelievably strenuous and exhausting. Andreas Andropoulos uh, was uh, just on the show talking about the amount of energy it takes to prop up this fiat crap called the US dollar. The amount of energy that people have to expend to keep the simple truth about their unrelatedness at bay is astonishing. It's why economies fail. People just get exhausted keeping the truth at bay. You know, like in the movie The Matrix, you have like a little, oh, I got deja vu. Like you have to really keep your eyes peeled for it. It's like, no, The Matrix is continually dissolving for people and they continually have to prop it up. That's why you see, wherever you see hysteria, you are almost always seeing people avoiding the truth of the non-existence of others. In in war, the cheering, in the media, in the intensity, uh, in – in war, in sports, in in all of these places where there's hysteria, at dance clubs. It is all like rain dances or magic man weather dances to keep the reality of unreality at bay. And this is what, I swear to God, 95% of people's brains are consumed with keeping the reality of unreality at bay. And then we wonder why TV is such a, Relief for them. Oh, good. I don't have to Mm. keep unreality at bay. We wonder why video games, pornography, uh, obsessions, OCD, uh, phobias, paranoia, addictions. It's all about keeping the reality of unreality at bay. Mm. And if you see that, I mean, it's just not tempting. You know, Beyoncé fine-looking woman, right? Mm -hmm. Right? She is like two millimeters away from being the ugliest person around, right? You just take two or three millimeters of her outer skin off and suddenly (laughs) she's like something you're running away from in a zombie film, right?
3: Yeah. Are there, there like, questions to ask? Because although I've stayed away from, you know few people in my life like I still go back to like some people just to like go out and get a beer with you know like is there something I could just like I guess bring up with them to kind of see whether or not it's even worth you know con- yeah it's called
0: you man <laughs> you're looking for some third party to, to well if I if I talk about Tesla will they be you know just bring yourself up just say anything that you genuinely think and feel anything and see how they respond you're like i'm writing you're looking for a trick right like <laughs> yeah. magic. what sleight of hand can i use to become real to people uh reality is not a sleight of hand right
3: and I'm I'm writing this down too. I'm going to write it down because I'm going to forget just be myself.
0: Like you, you're sitting across from someone. You don't have to do this. Look, I mean go out for beers. I mean what's that? what what do I care in terms of like – or what should you care what I care or what I think about it? If you want to go out for a beer and shoot the shit with someone about nothing in particular, fine. Who cares? You don't have to be like philosophy god 100 percent of the time, right? I, it's mm-hmm. fine. You know, I, I, There's nothing wrong with that. I mean I don't care. It doesn't matter. Right, but if you you, you know you should say, well, geez, you know, I'd really, I don't know if you're an atheist, but well, let's say you are, I say, well, you know, uh, I don't know what your religious beliefs are, but I actually, feel, I always feel kind of nervous bringing mine up because I'm, I'm an atheist, and that uh, you know, and I always feel I'm anxious bringing that up with people because I never know exactly how they're going to respond, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody says, well, yeah, you know what, I can, I'm not an atheist, but I've always wondered what I mean, what would it be like to be an atheist in, in this society? Or what would it like to be an anarchist? Well, I mean, what what's that like for you? What is it like for you to be an objectivist? What is it like for you to be a Rastafarian? What is it for like you to be into trains uh, spotting and, and stamp collecting? Like, what is it like for you to have huh, right? But that's somebody who's, you know, willing to explore the human condition. As the old saying goes, nothing human is alien to me, right? Mm. Yeah. Well, that's, you know. Yeah. So
3: I, I am an atheist, and it's hard for me to talk yeah. to that of.
0: Bernie Frank <laughs> – we just talked about this on the show the other day, yesterday. Bernie Frank, like a 17-term congressman or whatever, he like had a gay lover who was running like a, a gay prostitution ring out of his apartment, right? <laughs> I think it was in the 80s or whatever this was all found out. And he's fine. He's gay and his lover is running a gay prostitution ring out of their shared apartment. And he goes on to a fine old political career, right? Mm. After he leaves office, he's like, oh, by the way, I'm an atheist, right? So <laughs> being gay in America and, and having your lover run a gay prostitution ring and break the law is fine. But for God's sakes, don't mention anything about atheism, right? Mm. Yeah. It's hard. I, I, we, are, we are the most hated and feared minority Certainly in America, that's the case. It's not so much in Europe. Then then we get to spin and say, Well, I'm not an atheist, I'm an anarchist. Like, <gasps> right? <Yeah. laughs> Nobody ever asked me what, it's, what, what was it was like. What the hell is it like to be an anarchist? That's crazy. Like, that must be so difficult. I mean, why on earth would you do that? Well, what are you? Are you nuts? That's a f- perfectly fair question. I wonder that myself sometimes, right? So, yeah, just uh, tell someone what you think and feel, and, you know, if they have some curiosity, or, I mean, I think that's worth. I mean that's gonna be a conversation. It's gonna go pretty well, right?
3: Yeah, that doesn't happen now. Like if I talk about like being an atheist, I get um either like like no one would want to offend me, right? They'll say something like, Oh, that's just your belief or oh that's just what you think and, and it doesn't matter or something like that, where it's just like brushing it off, like, Oh, you're you're just different.
0: You know, or it's an attention-seeking, or whatever. right? Yeah, it's pretentious. Or you know, what does it matter? Why would you bother? Right. Yeah. But I would, uh, you know. Again, there's there's no, there is no slate of hand. It is just be the apparition that appears for people in the form of reality. Hmm. The reality of of you, right? And my brother from another mother Mm -hmm. i must move on to the last caller because i can't have a late night tonight for a variety of reasons so i really really appreciate you bringing this stuff up Lang. what a incredibly honest call and I'm, i'm sorry that the world is the way that the world is but you know man we can take some pride in navigating it anyway right yeah yeah
3: thank you i really appreciate you taking the time out and for for all that you do you've been extremely helpful for me like the past year so i appreciate it a lot
0: well, it's good. I like to think that I heap nine tons of difficulty on people and then take one ounce away, and then they they're relieved. Oh man, that's so much better. Anyway, I'm glad that it was helpful. Oh, oh, okay. and um,
3: yeah, go ahead. Is it okay if I plug the project that I was working on um, over the last six months when I like quit my job to to pursue music as a as a business? Yeah, please do. All right, so it's um it's called Transcender. And you can get it on my site. It's www.racious.com It's R-E-Y-S-H-I-Z-Z. I got a song on it called Atheists. I got a song on it called We Politic Ourselves. So it's like so there's some anarchy in there. There's some atheism in there. Um, there's some, um, there's a song on it called School Sucks. So uh, it's a lot of like what I learned just listening to you and just doing my own research and just a lot of like what I've been feeling like there's a song on there called alone talking about me being alone. So like, I I really like put, you know, myself into it. So if, if anyone wants it, it's free to download online, just go to my site and you'll get it.
0: Well, thanks. I look forward to eating the fat beats. I really appreciate that. and uh, (laughs) uh, Hopefully we'll get to talk again. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care, man. All right. Bye. Mickey, Mikey, Mikey.
1: All right. Peter is up next. And Peter wrote in and said, in 1822, Thomas Jefferson wrote, I look to the diffusion of light and education as the resource to be relied upon for ameliorating the condition, promoting the virtue and and the happiness of men. Has the modern economy rendered university an institution of student
4: debt slavery
1: as opposed to a virtuous pursuit of knowledge? Mm. What do you think?
4: Basically, uh, to put all that in a nutshell, I would say that uh, after seven years of business school, it kind of seems to me like going to college to get a job is a lot like get it, getting married to get laid. You know, doesn't really make any sense economically. <laughs> Except that,
0: you know, usually if you get married, you get laid, right? So going to college doesn't always mean you get a job, right? I mean, finance guys can't find jobs, lawyers and engineers can't find jobs these days. So, yeah, it's rough it's rough. Yeah, I mean college is college is kind of a new thing, right? Is it? And yeah, I mean I mean as far as, you know, Ben Franklin did like what went to grade 6, Shakespeare did 12 weeks of school every year and graduated as soon as like shortly, I think before puberty and got out as quickly as he could and he became a playwright by going to act in in plays and and going to be around the theater for like 10 years and then he, you know, he knows what the hell he's doing when he starts writing plays. And so, yeah, for a lot of – for a lot of the things that you need to learn how to do, apprenticeship and doing is a far better way to learn how to do them than going to college, right?
4: Yeah, it was human to be true. I mean I, I, I agree now after seven years and more debt than I want to talk about, but I mean holy Christ. Why would you go get a master's in the first place? Like, Why would you – yeah, why would you go to grad school at all?
0: Yeah, I mean as somebody who went to grad school, I'm still glad that I did. Uh, and look, like it has become an—I mean, for a variety of reasons, which we don't—I've talked about before. And also, I didn't go heavily into debt to to do it. But um, I would, you know, there, there's two reasons people go to college, or well, three, I guess. One is they don't know what they want to do, and they think the college is going to help them with that, which it doesn't generally. The second is they want to get into some profession that government regulations and requirements have made have made the demand for a college education necessary, right? You want to be a lawyer? You got to get your, you know, degree. And you want to be a doctor? And you got to get your degree. And right, so it's the way it is, right? They've just monopolized the market, right? Yeah. And in other words, you go to jail for being a good engineer without the particular degree. Okay, right. See Netflix suits for more detail on this, right? Anyway, so um. And uh, uh and and the the third reason is that. They recognize that. Having a degree gives you credibility. In other words, if you have a degree, people say, "Oh, he's got a degree." And if you don't have a degree, people say, "Oh, I wonder why he doesn't have a degree." And the reason all that's happened is because governments have just been subsidizing higher education like crazy. you know, to, to mostly to capture the intellectuals and to trap young people in debt. Young people are highly inconvenient to power, right as they are to entrenched economic interests, they work for cheap, they are skeptical, they are caustic, they are cynical. Uh, about their elders and, you know, they're a constant annoyance. So, you know, bury them in debt and, and draw them into school and, uh, make them continue to serve their masters uh, in the pursuit of of a degree. Pursuing a degree has, has nothing to do with learning how to think and everything to do with pleasing your professors. That's true. I mean, when I, when I was trying to get my master's going, I had a great thesis and I'm still very happy with it. And, um, I mean I, it took me forever to find a thesis advisor and I graduated way long after everyone else got their degree because nobody could figure out whether I should or shouldn't graduate and I ended up getting an A and all that. But man, it was a battle and a half. I mean it was much harder to get the degree and to find the advisor than it was to research and write like a hundred-page page thesis on the history of philosophy because uh, everybody you know, just over-specializes and that way nobody can ever tell them that they're wrong cuz nobody cares anything about what they're doing right right i'm studying sheep patterns in 17th century southern france okay i <laughs> yeah fine uh, i'm you know i have a life so yeah it, it doesn't have so it's just a way of making sure that young people continue to Bow to the Masters, the Masters have to be professors, and the Professors, like all people with power, become petty and vindictive and uh, ridiculous and embarrassing and you know to anyone with any free market experience in the intellectual pursuits as I have it's just it's ridiculous and nonsensical, and so on yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, it's, it's you bury them in debt and they can't question the system and you train the smartest ones to continue to take orders into their late 20s and then they can't change the system. And you give them the fallacy of sunk cost to the point where walking away from an academic career after you have buried yourself in master's and PhD land becomes a non-option. And then, of course, in the PhD land, because there's tenure, tenure doesn't mean that I'm popular professors never get fired, it means that unpopular professors never get hired because you know you can't ever get rid of them, right? And so, and also, of course, universities have pointed towards governments rather than students because governments now provide a huge amount of their income. Uh, in, in I think in Canada, it's like less than 10% of the price of the education is paid for by the student, which means the students don't really matter, right? I mean, what really matters is, is the government and pleasing the government and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I think that there's not a lot of value. Uh, I've certainly learned a lot more through free domain radio than I ever did through college. And all of the value that I brought to college was the value that I brought to college through philosophy, through objectivism and things like that. Uh, nobody in college taught me how to think. Uh, I never had a required course in logic uh, or sophistry or any of those things. And um, so, yeah, I I, I think it's a, it's a pretty empty and vapid institution. And if you can get things done then go do them and if you you know it's it's fine if you've, if you've got the money and you want to hang out and, and you know meet some fun people and go to some not too many classes and write some papers and all that it's fine you know worse ways to spend your time but uh, it's I think not at all even remotely uh, a, a necessary or fundamentally valuable institution at all that, that's been not been the case for uh, I, I'm forever
4: yeah I mean I certainly agree but it's just you know finding out finding this out now you know i pretty much come to the realization that um in order to i'm really only in grad school now honestly to defer the loans that i've already taken out because i can't pay them off because i have no experience and i am only in school so
0: yeah you can't even i mean bankruptcy doesn't affect student loans
4: right, <laughs> right. so i'm i'm pretty i'm pretty screwed so I guess, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. Part of me just wants to, like, say, screw all this, drop out of grad school, and just, like, I don't know, ignore my loans, just run away from them, basically. But I know I can't do that. So
0: I don't know, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, my suggestion would be, I mean, if you want to finish a degree, finish a degree. But if you don't, you know, find some cool people and start something entrepreneurial. I mean, that'll teach you a lot more. Yeah. Then school will probably in terms of what, you know, pleasing customers and sales and marketing and raising capital. And, I mean, obviously a smart guy, right? So go out and get things done. You know, I mean, it's funny because I, you know, I went to school all the way to graduate school and then just started a software company, you know, with no training in software or business at all. And just learn as you go. And that business knowledge was the foundation for the success of this show and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and nobody ever said to me, what, are you kidding? You don't have a degree in computer science? Well, shit. I mean, nobody even <laughs> asked. You have a degree in business? You've never taken any management training courses and you want to run this whole department? You want to run this, the whole technical department of a big software? No, right? I mean, when I started going into sales and marketing, nobody said, well, you haven't taken a sales course. You haven't taken a marketing course. Nobody cared. Didn't matter. Could I get stuff done? I mean, it wasn't like they gave me giant accounts, right? It wasn't like they gave me massive like Yeah, I wrote a bunch of software and it worked. That but that was all the resume I needed. Oh, cool. You know, and there are people who say, wait a wait wait a second. Steph doesn't have a PhD in philosophy? It's like, yeah. Yeah. That's why you should be listening to me. Because I'm doing this and I don't have a PhD in philosophy. So I better be even better. <laughs> anyway.
4: Yeah, so you you would uh you would suggest that uh, it's not a good idea to stay on my current course. I should just change it and do something that actually adds wealth instead of debt. Accru- well, I,
0: look, I don't know. I mean, if you're if you're six months from finishing your PhD, I'd say you know probably worth finishing it, right?
4: Oh, well, I'm like a year and a half away from my MBA. And how
0: long is is the? Oh, you're six months into the program. Is it a two year program? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, you're obviously continuing to it's going to cost you how much right Yeah, uh, hundred thousand bucks to finish yep and does that include your opportunity costs well I don't know I mean Harvard Business Review you can just read for free right go to the yeah, library yeah. right I mean I mean, I don't, I don't know I don't know
4: yeah exactly but I mean I've, really... worked,
0: I've worked with a couple of people who have MBAs and uh, I found them like universally annoying Right. And that doesn't mean you, right? I mean, I'm obviously, right? I just, you know, like, I, it's all theory and it's not practice, right? That's true. It's like people who learn how to sew without needle and thread. It's like, well, I'd really like it if you actually put the needle on the thread, right? So I don't know. I, I mean I have no idea whether – I mean you'd need to look at the industry. You'd need to look at the standards and so on. But what I – and you don't have to make the decision one way or the other directly. But I wouldn't seal yourself up in academia to the point where you're not exploring potential opportunities to not be in academia, right? Absolutely. Right, so you know, get on the internet. I'm looking for you know people people who are looking for uh, startups, or people who want to get startups going, or if you have an idea for one, just start casting it about. You know, you can get your microfunding and all that kind of crap. I mean, you, it's a hell of a lot easier to get businesses started now than it was when I started. Oh my God, don't I sound like an old fart? Oh, well, <laughs> I am, but um, but yeah, I mean, it just get get things going. You know, I mean, I think you know. Just talk to Jeff Tucker. I mean, he's he's starting Liberty Me. I mean, if you've got great skills and enthusiasm and you understand the philosophy, you know, you can just send resumes to him or you know, give him a call and, and maybe he knows someone. You just stop putting all the feelers out. Just get used to getting on the phone and asking people for stuff. You know, that's really the first <laughs> the first foundation of success is just get on the phone and start asking people for stuff, and uh, you know, keep asking until somebody gives you some stuff so or offers you some some help and lots of people do right particularly the people who've achieved some success they, they really want to help out others because you know everybody remembers how hard it was so so that would be my you know just just yeah it's, you know, go to your course or whatever fine but if you get some opportunity that you can generate then you know that's that's something you can choose then but if you're not even pursuing that kind of stuff then you're just kind of orbiting this thing as a way of hiding out and i don't think that's a great idea
4: yeah, that's true. Well,
0: um, and if anybody's listening to this, is there a way they can contact you?
4: Yeah, um, of course,
0: you my, don't have to give a last name or anything, but if there's just some way to contact you, um, that would be great. Or we could insert it into the links if you don't have anything handy.
4: Um, yeah, can I give them my email? Please do. Uh, yeah, email is. Um, P. Baggin at su. It's P-
0: P-B-A-G-G-A-N, Right. Exactly. Okay, P. Baggin, uh, relative of Bilbo, and yeah, smart guy understands libertarianism, economics, um, and uh, uh, you know, obviously has the intellectual horsepower to get into a PhD, uh, to a, an MBA program, which means that he's too smart probably to finish it. Uh, so <laughs> so point. yeah give him a shout if uh, if you'd like to talk to him uh, i'm sure he'll work for well he'll work for enough to pay off his student loans to begin with i'm sure that will help
4: but, i I, uh, I also actually am in on a founding team of a small startup i'd like to plug as well um we're creative chemistry um we're we're starting we're doing a uh, a secret show this summer go to liveathegrill.com. that's live at the to uh, subscribe to our uh, newsletter And uh, we've done artists like Camp Lowe, Kane, if you've heard of them. We're in the Northern Virginia, D.C. area. Check us out if you get the chance. It would be really great if you would support us.
0: All right. Fantastic. Well, I hope that that works out. And, uh, yeah, I mean, always have your foot in more than – always have your pokers in more than one fire, I guess you could say, uh, because you never know where the next geyser of flame is going to light up. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm a big one for spread your – uh, spread your risks out, or spread your rewards out. So uh, just don't hide out there in academia. Just just keep plugging and keep keep driving at something, and something will connect that may lift you out. And if it doesn't, at least, you know, you've made some contacts for when you graduate. Yeah, man, I appreciate the time. Thank you. You're very welcome. And uh, thank you, everyone, for calling in. Um, sorry again that we had some technical issues last night, but I guess we are back on the sunny side of the Skype street. So uh, remember, no show Sunday and Wednesday. And uh, thanks again to Mike for setting this up last minute. And we will talk to you soon. Take care.